Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com, and that includes our Blister Summit 2023 registration, which is now open, and you should, well, one, become a Blister member and then sign up for the summit if you're not already a Blister member because you'll get a discount on the summit. And Kristen Sinnott and I, Kristen, of course, is our Blister Summit director. We recorded a podcast that went up on our Blister podcast channel where we talk about some of the new info and the new format for next year's Blister Summit. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, you should. And then you should sign up because we are going to run out of open spots, I'm sure of this, for this year's summit. Okay, today we've got for you another Reviewing the Reviewer episode, and in the hot seat today is Drew Kelly. This ended up being kind of a long episode, frankly, because this might be the most interesting Reviewing the Reviewer episode that we've ever done. I don't know, we've had some good ones, but man, this might have topped them all. And that's because Drew is a very interesting person, which you are about to find out. I knew he was interesting. I didn't know he was this interesting. So even I learned a bunch. And Drew is also a great guy, a great skier, somebody who loves the mountains. And we talk a lot about mountain travel in a lot of different forms. Drew also reviews for us on the ski side of things, and as you'll hear him talk about, this guy is, some might describe him as a choss monster, some might describe him as a free soloist, mostly maybe Drew describes himself as that, and then, I don't know, we talk a lot about Drew's dating profiles, that happens a lot in this conversation, so anyway, I hope you enjoy I'm really happy to get to introduce you to Drew Kelly if you haven't had the fortune of getting to know him in real life. And you know, by the way, Drew will also be at the Blister Summit, which after you listen to this, I think some of you are going to be dying to meet the guy. Some others, (laughs) maybe not so much. I don't know. See for yourself. But here we go. My conversation with Drew Kelly. All right. Well, I am here with Drew Kelly. So excited for this. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So many questions. I feel like I know a lot about you, but there are still some like blind spots in my Drew Kelly knowledge. So this is this is going to be good for me. I don't know how it's going to be for you, but it's kind of less of my concern at the moment. We'll see how much of a fool I make of myself. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the whole point of these reviewing the reviewer episodes. So um, here's hoping here's hoping you come off at least a bit foolish. First of all, what is this? Is this your third appearance on a Blister podcast? Yes, this is my third. So hopefully I've gotten over my uh, mic fright. Mic fright. Mike. Wow, I've never heard. I've heard of stage fright. I'm sure there's some Mike fright radio term for that. Okay. You've actually only been on Gear 30 podcasts to date. Correct. Yeah. We need to change this. Matt Mitchell, where's when is Drew getting invited onto Off the Couch? <laughs> and also, I'm going to spring this on you. This will make more sense later. 
when are we going to do the blister podcast birding episode? Uh, tomorrow <laughs> at 5.30 a.m.? <laughs> Oh no! I gotta bring like all the audio equipment or, out, or we can go earlier. I mean, you're up pretty early, yeah, or or late. Co- yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking we'd bring on like a renowned birding expert. Okay, you probably. I, know I grew him. up like down the street from David Sibley, who's the renowned birding expert. Okay, we're gonna do this. Okay, okay. This will make more sense in a little bit here, but we're gonna keep it moving. Let's get into your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, pretty much in New England, um, New Hampshire, and just outside of Boston in Concord, Massachusetts, home of Walden Pond. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of where I grew up skiing and loving the outdoors, among other things. And my family, for the most part, pretty much all still lives there. Gotcha. Still just outside of outside of Concord? Uh, outside of Boston, in Concord, yeah. In, they're in Concord. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Walden Pond, not Wait. that remote, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's actually in my backyard. Uh, yeah. About one just, mile away. You were just back home. Yeah. You definitely didn't invite me. You definitely, I think I may have been in Europe or something. Yeah. Was I? I think so. And I went for a run, yeah. reviewing some shoes, testing some shoes, and I ran around Walden Pond and I took some pictures and I was going to send them to you. And then I was like, that's stupid. He's seen pictures and like Thoreau's cabin and stuff and the quotes and what the pond looks like now. And I didn't do it. I'm I'm sad right now. You still should have sent them. (laughs) You still should have sent them, Drew. Good for you. Okay. I'm just ticking through. I'm actually heading to new England next month. Okay. But I, I, okay. I gotta, I gotta work on this, but yeah. Anyway, next time you go, maybe invite me. Or just maybe even send the photos of you and Walden Pond. That'd be much appreciated. All right. Can do. We'll okay. do. Um, okay. So when you were in New Hampshire till when? And then you got to Concord? Uh, I was in New Hampshire until high school. Huh. And yeah, I had been at that point, I had been going to a ski academy. And when I started high school, I was kind of feeling like I needed to redefine myself as maybe not such just like mm-hmm. the jock kid that I was. I don't know why I had these feelings, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to like read books and try and be one of the other smart kids at high school. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I went to some like artsy fartsy high school outside of Boston, also in Concord. Huh. And, uh, I was still skiing a bunch, but I, I stopped for a while and yeah. Huh? So, Tell me about your ski academy days. Uh, well, mainly it was me getting in a lot of trouble. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> skiing, I think I was a shy kid. And so like skiing enabled me to be uh, the polar opposite of shy. It yeah. just like brought me to my happy place. And my friends were pretty rambunctious. So I just yeah joined in with that crew and yeah lots of uh detentions and uh uh midnight runs forced on us by our coaches and that sort of thing and um it was really cold i I think the coldest i've ever skied in was probably eighth grade uh it was like (laughs) negative 60 with wind chill 
and they let us not go uh, alpine skiing. They said we could go Nordic skiing instead. So on that day, but um, I have uh, I have some frostbite that still is with me to this day from those ski academy days. Wow. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Technica was uh, like racer sponsoring me at the time or whatever. And they asked for my shoe size and I told them and they gave me a boot that was like three sizes smaller than my foot. And uh, they had to grind holes through the shell to make my feet comfortable enough to stay in them skiing. So, uh, yeah, I can't say all those memories were fun being at a <laughs> ski academy because that was pretty painful. But Wait, they ground holes through the shell. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of like Flintstone style shoes where like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Fred Flintstone's like, yeah, like just burst. In the heel cup so that I could like have this bone spur stick out through it and then also like in the toe box. Not all the way through the shell. In you the heel li- all the way through and in the toe box. It was a Technica boot which was opaque orange and they ground through it so much that it was like a clear orange you could see my toes wiggling through do you have photos of this <laughs> this was before cameras <laughs> i don't know how old i am but Drew's, this is a long time Drew's, ago i forgot to tell you all that drew is 107 yes. years old um <laughs> how old are you for the record uh 32 32 i'm 32 yeah dude i think cameras existed <laughs> um you literally don't have any photos of- i don't think so wow all right. Um, I think that was just par for the course. So it wasn't worth a photo. <clears throat> okay. Um, we did, I remember a, one day we were skiing together here. Was it this season or last? And you were talking a bit about your like approach to ski racing. And also that Bodie Miller was a bit of a kind of inspiration for you. Oh, Say absolutely. a bit more about your like, <clears throat> yeah. What was the ski racing approach like? Okay, well, uh, it was, it was, you know, crash or win DNF. I'd say probably my finish rate was, you know, (laughs) 10%. 10%? Yeah, at best, I would say. (laughs) um, And, uh... Yeah, I just didn't really like, again, it kind of goes back to this thing of I was a shy kid, but skiing brought me to my happy place. It was where all my friends were. And as, you know, like as teenagers, we would just get so jacked up, like free skiing around with each other and kind of, you know, you know, running from ski patrol in between ski runs and stuff and and you know drinking like 8,000 sodas we had these things called hockey pucks where you just go up to the drink machine and you fill your cup with every single um soda soda or drink in it and you just chug it and you know so we were hopped up on (laughs) (laughs) Mountain Dew and everything else and everything else wait why did you call them hockey pucks I don't know I never got I never got it doesn't sound anything like a hockey puck yeah they have other names I think they're called like a maybe a spider or something also somewhere but yeah so uh (laughs) you know that that manifested itself in my skiing too and it was just you know I could go all out and spectacularly crash. And at that point in my life, spectacularly crashing didn't hurt that much (laughs) (laughs) or I would be really fast. (laughs) Gotcha. Turns out, uh, skiing style hasn't changed all that much. (laughs) I'd say I've reined it in a good bit. Like when I stopped ski racing and it was like, I don't have to make gates. I can turn anywhere. This is, this is awesome. This is easy. (laughs) So, so yeah. I, I try not to crash more than like twice a year. 
Yeah. Although I think you've been present I, for a couple yeah, recently. I, I was present for, I hope that was your last crash of last year. There wasn't another significant uh, one after that because I was there for a, yeah. I didn't see it. I just turned around and you weren't in a great. <laughs> My head a, was speared into the ground. Yeah. yeah. You weren't I, in a great spot. Yeah. I think I had one more, but uh, it was a, it was a crash heavy year, but you know, not crashing, not trying. That's what they say. Okay. So then, yeah, I like that you in going into high school. So you definitely sort of did your transition bef- quicker than I sort of did mine between like trying to be smart, <laughs> which, you know, kudos to us. We, we both eventually made the turn, right? <laughs> or tried to. I did. We tried. <laughs> right. What were you into at that point? I mean, again, because in high school, I was still just an idiot. <laughs> but like, did you already start to do be like, man, I'm getting or even wannabe, right? Like, were you like, oh, the cool kids seem to be know a lot about film or was it books, film? What were you into? Yeah, well, I had just started playing music um, right before high school. So I was really into playing drums. So that facilitated me playing a lot of music. And yeah, like I said, I went to an artsy fartsy high school. So like painting, drawing, Hmm. art, that was the cool stuff to do, film. And I remember sitting in a in like a freshman English class and just feeling like people were like analyzing. It was, I think it was the Odyssey even of like people were analyzing it. And I just felt like they were like speaking a different language and like revealing all these like secrets about it. And I was like, I want to understand this language and understand how to like break things down. And so, yeah, then I just got into writing and, um, and through that like film stuff. Yeah. Writing and film. Yeah. So writing film, music, that was kind of my that was kind of my thing in high school. Okay. We'll circle back on some of the maybe writing and film stuff at the end of this conversation, but we'll keep it moving for now. So college. You end up going to what used to be uh I don't know, basically Blister University or our feeder system, mm-hmm. right? Colorado yeah. College. Yes. So I have to confess, like Again, when I was coming out of high school, I definitely had never heard of Colorado College. How did it get on? I mean, you also, I mean, you just said you went to kind of the artsy high school, but like, how did CC get on your radar being just, even further away from it than I was at the time? I had a really good friend in, in high school. I went to this semester program on a farm in Vermont when I was a junior and I had this like really good friend there who was also named Drew. He was a real person. He was not my imaginary <laughs> friend. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and he wanted to go to Colorado college and I had never heard of it. And yeah. And then I just like looked into it and I knew a couple people who were going there too. And I just, the reputation was like, Oh, it's, you know, it's Colorado. They're skiing and there's a bunch of cool, hippie, dippy, relaxed <laughs> people there. And there's a lot of music and, uh, I don't know. There's like farming is the biggest major. So what's the biggest major? It felt like it felt farming? like farming or like agriculture was the biggest major. <laughs> I don't even think like a farming farming is a degree, but that's that was the impression I got. And so, uh, yeah, I landed there. Huh? Wow. That really sounds a lot less thought out than I would have expected. It took a while. I mean, I was considering like film school or music school oh. or somewhere else or like even ski racing on the East Coast. And uh, yeah, I just decided I wanted to take it easy and leave the East Coast and see something new. Huh. Well, like in high school, 
or in college, were you ever doing the like black leather trench coat vibe and like chain smoking <laughs> out back, you know, before or after classes, big, tall combat boots type of? No, I wasn't that rebellious or cool. I was okay. just like, you know, wearing clothes that didn't really fit and <laughs> I didn't really party at all. And uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Okay. I wish. <laughs> so what'd you end up studying at CC or graduating with, I guess? Uh, filmmaking and music were my two degrees, music minor and jazz studies. Jazz studies? Yeah. Wow. Your parents were like... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Drew. God damn it. <laughs> They're like, honey, CC's definitely not the cheapest school out there. But uh, fortunately, Drew's going to have an incredibly... A uh, lucrative <laughs> jazz career. Yes. Hence, I'm now a blister employee. <laughs> <laughs> Did you immediately kind of like first year out at CC get back into the skiing thing? Or did that take some time to, to draw you back in? No, that was, I, I turned in my thesis and was in, I graduated in December and I turned in my thesis and was on the road in five minutes heading to Snowmass Colorado where I was started my ski bum career hmm. yeah and I don't I like I don't know that was just always something I felt like I needed to do and wanted to do and had all these like unrealized ski goals at the age of 22 and uh yeah here I am here you are we're still putting all of this under your background category so <laughs> a, a grade is still you know coming on the background <laughs> I think we'll just talk about sort of mountain travel, right? I mean, talk a bit, by which I just kind of mean traveling in the mountains when it's not winter and you're on skis. So that's something you do quite a bit of. You are a, you know, ski reviewer for us, but also reviewing on the running side of things. When did walking through and or running through mountains become a thing you do? It's always been a part of my life. But, and I've lived in a lot of mountain towns, like before Crested Butte, I lived in Telluride. And then before then, like I said, I was living in the Roaring Fork Valley. And um, when I moved to Crested Butte, I think that I just had felt uh, kind of like unrooted from all these places that I had been moving through and not really gotten a good sense of them. And so I just bought a map. I was working at the Alpineer at that point. So I had a lot of good resources and I just wanted to explore every little nook and cranny. And yeah, so it's always been part of my life, but especially for the past four years, I've wanted to like really get to know this landscape in and out that yeah. I live in because it's a place that I enjoy. And so I feel like having these like, you know, right around the other side of that mountain, I, I just wanted to know what it looks like. And if I didn't know what it looked like, then somehow I wasn't like truly living here or like yeah. fully absorbed in this place. Yeah. I know it's a bit embarrassing, but I kind of had this realization just again recently, actually 4th of July. And I, I we were talking about this. Um, I went up with my friends Dana and Brian and we were up on Gothic Mountain. And it was the first time I'd been up on Gothic since I've lived here. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, and it is stunning. And we're fortunate to have so many different peaks around here to get so many different vantage points from. And it absolutely was like, okay, I still love mountain biking, but like I don't experience, I don't see a place when I'm mountain biking the way I do 
if I'm specifically hiking, like, cause even trail running for me, like if I'm actually running and putting in a hard effort, like things kind of shut down and I'm just focused on, right. Like whatever, toughing it out. Yeah. I was like, man, I need to be doing more just what we call hiking or, and, or scrambling for mm -hmm. the exact same reasons you mentioned. Or birding. That's why I bird. Very slow activity. Lots of appreciation to be had of the landscape. Okay, you're jumping. You're jumping ahead on subjects, but that is next on my list. Okay, okay. so that's we've gotten a bit of Drew's background. I think we're gonna give him an eight. I think he gets an eight for that. That was pretty good. Sweet. Um. Okay, birding has now come up twice. It's time to do this. I still remember being shocked. When I found out that like you are pretty passionate about this activity, I guess we call it birding. It's I don't even know what you call the thing. I, birding is the official title. Yeah, birder, amateur ornithologist, <laughs> citizen scientist. <laughs> citizen scientist? Yeah, if I want to, you know, sound really high and mighty. <laughs> I don't usually call myself that, but because part of birding, like... Everyone needs, oh gosh, I'm really going to ego sacrifice myself now yeah. here. Uh, part of birding, like every birder uses ebird.org, which is a very cool website where you can <laughs> upload all your sightings lists that are attached to your, lo your specific location and um, the weather and the time and the day and the, and the area that you've traveled. And so this is the largest largest citizen science database in the world. Huh. And uh, I think it's got something like a couple million viewers or users across the globe. It's run by Cornell, who has like a very large birding huh. or ornithology, I should say, in their case, program. Yeah. They don't call it birding. <laughs> Professional ornithology. <laughs> What'd you get your PhD in, birding? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so... Uh, yeah, you, you, you can upload this data and they use it in their studies. It's it's big data for them. It's actually really useful. I feel like, though, to call yourself a citizen scientist, you, you need to have something in your wallet, like a license, something printed somewhere. Or you're saying just by virtue of having, like, uploaded some... Yeah, that's what they call it. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't seem very official. Do you, you don't have something in your wallet? You can pull out to show me? No, because it's like a secret identity. I wouldn't want to be caught with my wallet because, you know, it's not that uh, sometimes, depending on the crowd, it's not that dignifying calling yourself a citizen science or a birder. Although I will say that I, uh, I'm just going to ego sacrifice myself again here. But when I put birder on my online dating profiles, mm. That was the only time that I really got very many matches or the only thing that people were curious about at all in my profiles. <laughs> one time, one time you took this picture of me skiing and you're like, you should put that on your Tinder profile. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I put that on my Tinder profile. No Nothing. questions, no hits. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. I, I, I misled you. I I remember that moment. I don't remember what the photo was, though. It was just like you'll have to, when we're done. You'll have to text me that. Actually, that's the photo we'll lead with for the <laughs> oh, yeah for God. on social for this podcast. And you I, can Photoshop in some binoculars and some birds <laughs> to it. We'll have that up. And I mean, do you have any action photos of you out birding? 
No, I don't think so. Oh, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> okay, so I need you to get me before this goes live the the action photo that I took of you that said that's what should be your Tinder profile photo, and then we'll have your birding photo, and then we'll just let the people decide. Great. Ski shot or citizen scientist shot. Well, have you subsequently gone back and put birder on your profile? Seems like you should. Given Yeah, it stayed there. Okay. Yeah. Because that's the only thing that's getting me any resemblance to anything, <laughs> which is to be clear, nothing. <laughs> Basically nothing. Is that true? Come on. Let's do two minutes on true social life. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think this. Look, I know people, right? I know people. We talk about you, and what I'm hearing, word on the street, is you're you're not you're not sitting home alone all the time. You're, you're yeah, I'm out birding. Oh, sorry, that might be true. Okay, so you're claiming there's not a lot of seismic activity on the current dating front. No, it's uh, it's it's pretty quiet. Okay. Yeah. Well, ladies, if you're listening to this Gear 30 episode, I mean, he's a citizen scientist, has a degree in jazz and film, <laughs> does work for Blister, does have, according to Rob Dickinson and all the rest of us, the best turn in Crested Butte. I think we're stacking together a pretty compelling, you know, <laughs> outline here. That's right. Uh, I'll be a good bet on their financial welfare in the future. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we'll work with this. We're, we, we're working on some things. Um, okay. I like this. This birding segment, which is what I had for our next category, I think I'm just giving that a 10 because it somehow was both birding and your social life, <laughs> which I didn't see that turn coming. So I'm, I'm happy with how that went. But um, I do think we should do a blister podcast dedicated to birding. And I, I'm at like zero at this in terms of knowledge. So you said, sounds like we already know the person do what are our odds or likelihood of getting? Oh, David Sibley. Yeah. Oh, he lives in Concord. So if we want to do a podcast with him, is this what, I mean, we can, we can start this out afterward, but I just think we should, I mean, as like an homage to you, there should be at least one episode dedicated to, you know, birding <laughs> topics. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of gear involved in birding, so. You there's know. a lot of gear? Yeah. Well, there's binoculars and sunglasses and scopes and the uh, proper khaki suit that you need to wear. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. No one's listening anymore to this. I'm just envisioning what would we call our Gear 30 birding podcast spinoff? Uh... Well, the alliteration is birds and big ideas. Oh. Um, How about, I got one, birds and chicks. <laughs> Double entendre oh <laughs> brings you all the way back around. Oh, boy. I think it's birds and chicks. Um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop this one. Okay, well, I already gave you, I think, a 10 for that, and, it, and then it got better from there, or worse from there, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, all right, let's actually talk about some um, non-birding gear um, so we're going to talk a bit about some of your ski preferences, and then we're going to get into some of your running slash hiking slash scrambling preferences for summer mountain travel. Ski preferences. 
inbounds alpine skis? Um, generally, I like uh, pretty traditional skis, um, traditionally cut skis, like flatter tails, a lot of camber, uh, pretty heavy. Uh, I actually like skis with fairly short turn radii, like in the... Uh, 17 to 22 23 turn radius um and that's just because you can they're really agile on groomers at lower speeds so they're really fun to lay over on a blue or even a green you know and they just come alive if you're just actually railing a turn rearward mount points i <laughs> like those all <laughs> yeah <laughs> to an extreme i like those except i will say this year i have come to appreciate um a wider variety of skis you have you've really branched <laughs> yes, out like i've actually enjoyed skis with mount points uh more forward than minus 10 or uh, <laughs> or more tail splay than you know 20 millimeters mm-hmm. um yeah so i'm coming around uh Boots, I would say I have not totally come around to no. for better or worse. No. Uh, probably for worse for my feet. Um, Though I, I can't say I've ever seen like your actual heel or toes in a ski boot, like popping, stuffing out of a <laughs> ski boot. So it sounds like you're doing better than you were like in middle school. Yeah. Well, I'm not wearing a 24.5 with a size US 10 and a half foot anymore. I'm wearing a 26. So yeah, yeah. that helps. Man. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're still to date going and preferring pretty heavy, pretty high flex boots. Yes. And, um, you know, the weight to me just is a suspension thing. Yeah. Like you can ski faster in a heavier boot and not, um, and, and things don't feel as harsh. You don't get the, you don't get the feedback or the, or the rattly feeling quote unquote, or whatever you want to call it, um, of a lighter boot. Yeah. Um, especially free free riding on, um, variable snow conditions. Um, yeah, I like boots that are, you know, 130 to 150 flex and that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's down from the 170 flex that I grew up used getting used to skiing and you know we all know that like those flex numbers are very relative um and you know i would love to i'm i am experimenting or have have been trying to devise ways to just have one boot that um whose flex pattern works across multiple temperatures Mm -hmm. um because i feel like a 130 in a sort of like atomic redster cs type boot Mm -hmm. is great for me when it's cold but when it's warm it just squishes in half and it could be could be a 115 or something and so i've been curious about this uh like you know tongue edition do you know what this is called yeah there's you know i i don't ski i haven't skied many cabrio boots many three-piece boots but uh, just the idea of having multiple tongue flexes for that reason alone is really appealing to me because I hate bottoming out a boot and I like I like a lot of rebound, like a very a very springy feeling a boot. Um, which you know, I mean, in general, like my the boot that I've liked the best in the past ten years um, has been a Nordica Doberman GP one thirty, which is their like 
wider lasted race boot, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and this season I spent a lot of time in the Atomic Redster World Cup 150, um, <laughs> which is like admittedly overkill, but I love having something to push against in a boot. Like that to me is like, if I feel like I'm going to get pitched forward or if the yeah. rearward support isn't there, I don't have any control. Like I can be in almost any ski and I'll feel comfortable, but if the boot isn't right, I'm not going to be able to ski the way I want to ski. And yeah. that comes down to the boot itself and also the fit. But, and now I'm going to out you. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> A mutual friend of ours <laughs> informed me that you cut the shell. Yes, I did cut the shell. We, uh, I'll give a shout out to my friend Hunter Dagnan, who is Hunter. a phenomenal boot fitter yes, and phenomenal friend. Yes. And he helped me trim the, it's called like a saddle trim on the Atomic Redster 150 because it was too stiff. And admittedly, it wasn't the boot that I wanted to buy when I bought it. Uh, so we wanted to make it, the goal was like make it like a 140 as yeah. opposed to 150. And that boot, like those higher end polyurethane plastics, they're really temperature sensitive. And so when it's cold, that thing is super stiff. And when it's warm, it's really squishy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're still kind of trying to figure out your warm, really warm temps, late spring boot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And then the issue with race boots too, not to drag on about this, but they're really cold boots they're just like temperature wise they do not keep your feet warm the liners are thin and the boot boards a lot of them are ceramic so they your feet are really cold and then because they're designed for like firm snow hard snow ice really performance Mm -hmm. weirdly in a way like you would think like a 2500 gram boot would like shut out all feeling of snow completely and you'd have no snow feel but weirdly they're designed to give you like a lot of snow feel because world cup racers want to feel like the quality of the ice that they're on so that they can dial in how they're pressuring their their skis, whether it's through the foot or the the toe or the shin or whatever. So that boot is actually kind of harsh in a weird way. Huh. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Well, as I think many people know, I had, I put a lot of days this past season in the Atomic Redster CS Club Sport 130. And just to be clear, like we're talking about two very different boots. There's, I'm in a CS, Drew is in the cut. That's probably the most scandalized I've ever felt about you (laughs) and anything you've ever done was when Hunter was like, you know, he cut that boot. And I was like, (gasps) so I felt like you've been living a lie. Well, there goes my Tinder profile. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're like full-time citizen scientist, but I did cut my 150 shells. (laughs) Yeah. Chicks are like, ugh, next. (laughs) Anyway, so just to be clear for people, like we are like that World Cup boot is a different beast from the CS that I'm skiing. But still, I will say like I actually found myself on really warm days this spring actually skiing instead the Atomic Hawks Professional with that foam liner because that seemed less temperature sensitive than the much heavier Redster CS. So we're just talking facts about, you know, PU ski boots, right? Yep. And uh, and we're all 
you know, figuring out our way through this cold, yep. dark world. Yeah, we picked the wrong sport. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, uh, related topic, but kind of switching gears. Um, I want to talk about some backcountry touring gear and some preferences on that front. And we, you can kind of take this broad if you want. Um, Well, maybe it'll be interesting. I mean, often people who are like, I like a really heavy, really stiff boot inbounds. We've talked with a lot of these people. They're like, I'm touring on a very heavy backcountry setup, either because they have a heavy ski or a very heavy boot or both. Do you make a big shift in philosophy when it comes to touring in the backcountry or do you keep it kind of on the heavier, stiffer side of things? I will say I've tried not to make a shift like my skiing is not incredibly versatile (laughs) (laughs) i love that okay yeah and so one of the downsides of that is the compromises that touring gear makes through all of its design aspects don't really like they don't support that type of like front of the boot like you know every turn has to be a GS turn type skiing. And so over the years, I've kind of come to realize uh, stubbornly, slowly that um, (laughs) it's important to know what my goals for the day are and what the conditions are going to be like and what type of line I'm skiing. Um, Because the the main setup that I tour on nowadays is Olang XT3 130 LV, which is a almost an 1800 gram boot. I think it's like 1775 with a, with a booster strap on it. Um, like the world cup flex booster strap. And I have a Duke PT 16 that I use and I have that binding on two different pairs of skis. This, this past year I had a 192, uh, K2, my mentor 116 C. And then I had a 186, uh, 20, 2021 Rossi sender, and part of that comes down to is I, I just messed up a lot of touring bindings over the years and I really, I don't fully trust them, mm-hmm. but Meaning I mean, when you say I messed up a lot of touring bindings, you broke, broke. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> or pre-released or like overdid the elastic travel. So the heel piece came off the track or something. And so that's stuck in my head. Like yeah. a big part of skiing is, is mental, like Maybe yeah. that's, maybe that's a no brainer. So, so that's stuck in my head and that's why I'm touring around on those like giant bindings. And like, I've taken those bindings and those setups on like days of like 20 plus miles and like five to 7,000 feet of gain. And it's <laughs> absolutely brutal. <laughs> um, and the justification in my head is always like, oh, well just go slow. You know, you'll yeah. appreciate it more. You'll get yeah. to the top eventually, but skiing will be awesome. And the reality is if the conditions suck, the skiing is not good even with that equipment, you know? And it's like, if I'm doing hop turns down sheer ice, I don't need a 16 din binding and in, with like alpine hold capabilities and elastic travel. Like I should just be on an ATK, for example, something like that. Holy cow. <laughs> you just jumped. You just jumped from <laughs> one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. Like 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 a 300 gram binding or You're a 400 not gonna, gram binding. Have you skied? Have you skied an ATK? Yes. I skied the I skied the moment iteration, the Voyager yep. 12 on a uh, the Intention 100. Yeah. Wonder Alpine Intention 100. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
what'd you think? So let's stay on this for a minute. Cause okay. I, I think it's cool to like, I might bounce back to the Duke. Cause I think a lot of people are still wondering, right. About that particular binding. And, you know, this is almost absurd to be talking about going from a Duke PT to a 300, not a 300 gram ATK, but a, maybe the Voyager's around five, four fifty five to five, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. 450 to 500 gram binding. What did you think, first of all, just in terms of the skiability? How much difference do you notice being in a Duke versus that binding? I actually notice a lot. Yeah. Like the, I think that's the right answer. Yeah. I mean, if you're in PAL, I'll, I'll say, yeah. it, again, it, it comes down to conditions. If you're in PAL, I, I do not notice a ton of difference. Yeah. Um, but if you're on firmer snow or variable PAL, which yeah. it seems, Split, yeah, I'm splitting hairs here, but you notice the torsional rigidity, right? You can feel the ski f- in the in your boot flexing in the binding, essentially side to side when you're turning, and uh, it also is just a harsher feel because there's less elastic travel. You're in a rigid toe, you're a fixed toe. Yeah, I think this stuff is interesting, and I think it's consistent. Like, I think the options on the very light end of the binding spectrum or the touring binding spectrum, I should say, to the very heavy options in touring bindings. We've said it before, I think, but like, it's just the options along the spectrum are better than they've ever been. And so I will always push back on anyone trying to be like, I don't know why you'd ski a heavy thing. Like they're the same, like they're not the same. But I think that backcountry skiers can just really dial in their priorities now. And, you know, that's what we try to do. I mean, we get to get on a lot of this different equipment and you're going through this, like you're kind of exploring and figuring out where do you want to be living on the spectrum? And part of that still comes down to the day and the objective. But I think then our job is to go translate that back out and communicate to people who don't spend so much ridiculous time on all these different things and help them think through, yeah, this is probably where I'm living now. Yeah. And it's, it's cool because backcountry skiing in a lot of ways is about slowing down and getting away and being more intentional. And so the fact that you have all these options, you can really be, they can help you be intentional and, and actually force you to be more introspective about what are my goals and what yeah. do I enjoy and what's the best tool that can surface. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about packing, what you carry with you in the backcountry. And we're talking now about ski touring, not, not summertime mountain travel. Um, do you have certain philosophies or principles or things you are kind of always doing or carrying, you know, with you? Do you, you know, some people are like, I try to go as minimalist as possible to move as quickly as possible to get, you know, in and out. Talk about where you are with respect to some of that. Yeah, as much as I would like to save weight, because make no mistake, I don't like carrying around a ton of weight. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make anything any easier. I do not pack with the aim of going light because I don't really care about speed, at least on the uphill. I mean, I love going fast on the downhill, but I don't care about numbers and time. And like, I don't care that I did, you know, a thousand vert in 30 minutes. I care about the experience. And so because of that, I pack basically everything that I could possibly need. And that's like a rescue sled, you know, that a lot of people forego and like, that's fine. But I've just like those stories of like when people really needed them have stuck in my head. And so like, 
you know, I hear my, I hear my mom being like, oh yeah, he didn't have that rescue sled yeah. this one time when he said it was like, you know, green light in the back country. And so, yeah, I pack a lot of food. I pack extra safety layers. I pack a rescue sled and a med kit and all that. And then, yeah, other than that, just the standard kit pretty much. I feel like maybe your dating profile should also include like, I always enter the back country with a rescue sled. It's good. You know, people like to. Does that make me sound dangerous or responsible? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a great point. Maybe don't put that in. I I mean, I could use like the danger factor. Okay. Danger. Yeah. (laughs) If it keeps them thinking, I'll take both. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe we add and just keep the social experiment going. And if you're like, it's amazing. I've had 43 people. Can I pay you to run my (laughs) dating profile online? (laughs) This is not, this is advice definitely not worth paying for. So, um, yeah, just, this is my, yeah, not even two cents, but, uh, (laughs) but yeah, I think we should, you know, add that you can report back. We can come back update, you know, here on gear 30, you can let people know how it's going. Um, Okay, so non-snow mountain travel. And again, I I think we should say like some of the stuff you're doing is like I think the term we would use is just like straight up scrambling and or climbing. I mean, I don't know at what point scrambling turns into free soloing. Do you have thoughts or opinions on this? Oh, just give me a low bar is my thought, you know. The sooner that I can call it free soloing, you know, the more happy I am. Okay, (laughs) is free soloing on your profile? Free soloist? No, no. Jazz soloist and free soloist. (laughs) That might be good. Yeah, free jazz soloist. Mm -hmm. There you go. But I mean, you get into some... Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I am a wimp by nature and heights freak me out. Come on. No, I mean, seriously, and heights freak me out. And I happened to, when I moved to Crested Butte, line up with some people that were interested in the same type of like running, mountaineering, scrambling, free soloing, quote unquote, type of things that I was. And it's just like, there's something about my brain that's like, if I see like the top of a mountain or a peak and it's, I don't know if it's aesthetically appealing or what it is, or maybe I've just, you know, I want to know what it's like up there. And so, uh, yeah, I do a lot of like kind of long runs to access. Yeah. Stuff that's like sort of low fifth class. Like I'm not a real climber anymore, but yeah, I pretty regularly climb like up to like five, seven without any protection or anything in in the Alpine. And yeah, people around here in the West Elks, which is where the mountains around Crested Butte are that's their name. Um, people call it Choss Monstering because the rock is like notoriously loose oh, and man. gritty and unpredictable and which kind of is fun because it makes it be really precise and it's kind of like, you know, the ideal is like, oh, it's, they're here, these like punk rock Choss Monsters mm-hmm. going around finding the nastiest stuff to make their way across. It's not really that romantic in reality, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I like to do. So talk about some gear preferences or approaches when it comes to Choss monstering. <laughs> well, usually I do it in a running vest just cause that gives affords me like the most motion. It allows me to run obviously, but it also allows more movement when you're out climbing and it's a low profile pack. And, um, so running vest, I like to, it depends on the nature of what you're going out to do, but usually I carry like a like a squeeze water filter. Um, and other than that, some food, 
you know, the safety kit stuff. Rescue sled? <laughs> no rescue sled. Oh, man. Yeah. Ladies. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, sounds pretty half-assed if you, actually, uh, if you ask me. But yeah, usually shorts, sun shirt, and uh, running shoes usually. I've kind of experimented with like approach shoes yeah. for a lot of this stuff. And approach shoes just don't have the rebound or the cushion that you need to like go. Like if you're doing a ridge line and it's 20 miles long yeah. and you're scrambling the whole thing, like if you're in approach shoes, they can be really harsh on your feet. They're, you know, the rubber's really sticky, which is great, but they don't have much flex. They're yeah. really thin in the toes. Um, they're pretty rigid in the, in the upper, the medial and lateral, lateral sides of the upper. So I've moved away from approaches and gone mainly to kind of like mid cushion, sticky, uh, like tightly knit lugged running shoes, um, for a lot of this stuff. And I'm still searching out like the Holy grail of those yep. shoes, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a process. So, they're either the, the, the balance is like either they are not precise enough to give you like precise yep. scramble foothold capabilities because they're so cushioned or or they're too um they're too minimalistic they don't have enough stack height in the midsole and so you can't really make it for more than a distance of like 10 to 15 miles without your feet totally getting destroyed yeah. with the approach and egress or just like the alpine environment of like talus fields for hours yep so a not very hypothetical question. I mentioned Gothic. If you and I were going to go up Gothic tomorrow, what current shoe do you have in your possession that you've been in? Or maybe you don't currently have it in your possession, but like for Gothic, which is about two and a half miles up and about 2,600 feet elevation gain on that up. So fairly steep. Mm -hmm. What would be your go-to for something like that? Yeah, for going up something like Gothic where there is a bit of like a trail approach, it's kind of a moderate um, single track trail and then you start going up that steep north ridge and it's kind of like loose gritty dirt and then you get onto rock at the top. Probably doesn't exceed like class two-ish, yeah. but yeah. that gritty rock is steep and slippery. I'd probably go with the S, uh, the S Ultra Pro, the Solomon Ultra Pro. It's is a running shoe. It's sort of like uh, nearing maximal in cushion, but it's fairly stiff. So that that stiffness allows you precision and and traction, uh, especially on rock. And so I'm going with that shoe just because it's lugs. They're they're tightly knit, but they're still low. So they the low lug will do well on rock, but the tight the tightly knit um, lug will will have good traction on uh, that some of that looser dirt as well, I think. And then it's got enough stiffness in the upper or precision um, in the upper support in the upper that it's going to give me a confident foot placement. It's not going to fold in half or feel tippy when I'm when I'm on the rock or on steep stuff. But it's a running shoe, so you know it's going to enable me to have a good time and move quickly and flow through the the single track approach and egress. Yeah, you and I are both about to start getting some time in the La Sportiva Mutant. Yeah. Do you know much about this shoe yet? You haven't gotten your pair yet. I haven't gotten my pair yet. Okay. I've just you know from writing our brand guide for yeah. 
for La Sportiva, um, you know, and, and hearing people like Anton Kaprichka, yeah. who talks a lot about that shoe yeah. as sort of like his go-to for like scrambling and running in the boulder flat irons. Yeah. And, and that's my impression of the shoe so far. I haven't, I try not to like oversaturate myself yeah. with information before, before reviewing something yeah. and then sort of do that along the way as I go through the review. Yeah, I'm, I just got this shoe in. I can't wait to compare notes with you on this. And, and, uh, but you're right. I like your phrase, like kind of the holy grail. I mean, I guess it's the exact same thing when we're talking about touring bindings. Like, what are you going to prioritize here? You yeah. know, and how minimal or how maximalist, how light, how heavy, you know, and I don't know, but I'm, yeah, traction turns out when it comes to mountain bike tires and, uh, shoes on steep, rocky faces or loose dirt traction is something I quite value. <laughs> so, uh, I'm very curious if that mutant will kind of hit the sweet spot for, cause like if you're doing a longer, pretty mellow trail, will that mutant feel really overbuilt? Right. And those are some of the questions and we'll find out soon. And will it have enough rebound? A lot of those like shoes that excel on rock don't really have a lot of energy return on trail. And so they just feel kind of dead. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. On the gear preference side, I think that was pretty good. I don't know that it really helped people better understand what they should be doing on their dating profiles though. So I'm just going to go with, <laughs> I think that's at 7.5. Okay. All right. These next questions, some of them at least are going to go quicker. Who is your favorite reviewer at Blister? Well, after you, of course, it is, I <laughs> nope. think, a tie between uh, Dylan and Sasha. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, Sasha, I haven't skied with her very much, uh, but she just like, she just like exudes loving skiing. She's like yes. very vocally <laughs> excited to be skiing. Yes. And I love that she like pushes herself like, I see all these pictures of her. I probably see more pictures of her skiing than I actually have skied with her in huh. real life. But she's always jumping off something. She's always making a really nice turn. And uh, she also tries to like, whenever we're hanging out, like at the Blister Summits mainly, she definitely tries to enable me, which is uh, <laughs> which is fun too. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about skiing or are we back talking about your social life? Oh, yeah, both. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just this is actually, I know this to be a hundred percent true. So continue. Yes. yes. So I very much appreciate that about Sasha. And then Dylan and I have very opposite styles of skiing. Um, and so Dylan is very good at building me up and egging me on to do things that I would be scared to do that he does all the time. Hmm. So I love that. And then Dylan is also somebody who just like exudes loving skiing. And of course, Dylan is the reviewer that I report to the most. So, you know, he's going to come down hard on me if I don't <laughs> list him. Wow. A lot of savvy. All right. I was going to only give you an eight for that. Minus two for, you know, being kind of a suck up to me. Uh -huh. But then I think you brought it back. Actually, you ended, you started by sucking up and ended. But I, I'm, I don't know. I'm giving that a 8.5, I think. I love the Sasha references. Next question. Who is your favorite skier uh this is a hard one for me obviously but uh my instinct was to go with jeremy heights mm. because you know he's got a style that i aspire to huh. i think and he has moved that into the backcountry and he's also just really good at i think making 
doing things his way, right? Like he's done, he does something like essentially what he does is backcountry super G, right? Mm. Or in, 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 in the big mountains. And before he did that, a lot of people I think were sort of doubtful as to whether that was a possibility. And I Mm. think actually in the snowboard world, it was more of a thing before it was a ski thing with people like, um, Jeremy Jones, um, or Xavier. Yeah. 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 So I think, I feel like he just took a lot of flack for people being like, no, no, no. One, you're going to be touring in like cast bindings and like he tours in heavy, nearly Alpine style boots. Yeah. Despite that going against the current trend, like out there of backcountry skiing, he's doing it and he's, I think being successful at it. But at the same time, he's somebody that's like capable of showing himself as being vulnerable. Like if you've seen the most recent movie that he released with Sam on like the movie kind of highlights their failures, right. In the, in, in the car quorum and, and you see him climbing a lot of stuff and he backs off and Sam keeps going in a couple of cases. And, and I actually think hmm. that's a hard thing to do as an athlete. And so I really respect that. And just like sort of having this, like, just like questioning everything, ski ability, snow knowledge, and, and, and just, reducing him down to like it's basically negated the stuff that he's known for and i think that's a hard thing to do so i respect that a lot Hmm. and of course he's still an amazing skier with just like a vision to do things his way um but my close tie with that was hank billis (laughs) who (laughs) his is like ex free ride world tour athlete stopped skiing on the free ride world tour by choice and sort of a all or nothing guy like and he just had this like again is one of these people that really loves it and just like externally shows it and he would like he's the type of guy that out of the start gate would just like do a front flip into the line just because like he was having so much fun and was so pumped up and just happy to be skiing and with friends at least that's my impression of who what was happening and who he is you know watching from afar but uh, and then he would always do just really unpredictable and creative things. And so his skiing just sort of inspired me to do the same. Hmm. Yeah, that was two answers. Yes, it was. I don't know how we feel about that. Yeah. I remember getting heavily docked <laughs> by Sam and Luke uh, when I gave multiple answers to a single question. So the, well, I guess this particular question isn't done yet. Now I want to flip to who is your favorite runner? You know, the easy there is Killian, Killian Journey. I'm going to go away from that and say uh, Justin Simone, Simony. Justin Simone is somebody who is doing a lot of fast packing and scrambling and running stuff like over incredibly long distances, making a lot of um, first ascents or like in his case, a lot of it is uh, like ridgeline stuff. So I don't know if you'd call that an yeah. ascent or a first traverse, but he's just another person that like he's letting the landscape dictate what's inspires him he's not so much like a numbers guy or a speed guy or like what other people do guy it's like i see this line in the mountains i want to i want to follow that line Mm -hmm. i think that's really cool to just like be so inspired by the landscape and and to push yourself according to that he's doing things that are you know 100 miles long like ridgeline traverses from the foothills in Salida that extend all the way down to the southernmost um, reaches of the Sangre de Cristo range, like multiple days, um, fifth class scrambling. And then he's got a great blog where he just is another person that will 
make himself vulnerable, which I think is cool. He's not like, yeah, it was hard. And then I just pushed through it and whatever. He's like, you know, I was like considering why I was too scared to do this one point and these other people did it. And should I do it because they did it? And he's, he just goes deeper than the surface level, quote unquote, like standard athlete view. Um, and yeah, he's doing it his own way. I think that's cool. It's pretty good. 8.5. Damn it. I feel like <laughs> I've gotten a lot of those. I know. I don't you like can this. Fail me. <laughs> I don't like this high scoring. I feel like there's, I don't know if there's been great inflation. I think there's been <laughs> enough episodes out of reviewing the reviewer that you all are like practicing and you're like coming in more prepared. We used to just come in hot. These new kids. <laughs> yeah. These new kids. Everybody's favorite question. What's the stupidest thing you've ever done? Well, to keep it skiing relevant, because the list is long. Uh, when I was 12, I tried to clear the half pipe by coming from the outside of the half pipe and hitting the outside wall. And I didn't really understand how physics works, I guess, because I wanted to land on the opposing outside wall of the half pipe. And instead, I just like splatted against the opposing wall, like splatted. <laughs> and my skis both uh, released and they the tips hit me in the face against the wall. I, I like sandwiched them and I had like cuts under my eyes from where like the edges like scratched my face. <laughs> Were you wearing a helmet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was smart. Don't worry. It was safe. I was wearing a helmet. <laughs> Did you have goggles on? Yeah. Okay. They cracked my you, goggles and yeah. You could have like literally blinded yourself. Oh, and yeah. then There's a life, lot of could have. <laughs> yeah. You could have been like, oh, I'm so sorry. You're blind. How'd you do that? And you're like, well, I was 12. Yeah. And I flew into <laughs> an ice wall <laughs> on skis. Mm-hmm. Best half pipe performance I've given ever. I mean, that's. I'm prepared to believe that. <laughs> Okay, that seems fair. Runner up up to the stupidest thing you've ever done seems to be about 15 minutes ago when you asked whether you could pay me to be in charge of your uh, dating profiles. That 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 I'm not sure how that would possibly be a good idea. Okay, so 7.5. If you'd blinded yourself, then I would have given you a 10. <laughs> I'll keep that in Just mind. Just a sympathy 10. What are you better at than Sam Shaheen? Shout out to Sam. We haven't, I haven't seen Sam in a while. Yeah. So, uh, Sam, we're thinking of you and still figuring out what all of us are better at than you. <laughs> well, the answer, the only thing, I've actually only met Sam once and I ski with him. So, the answer is not skiing. The answer is Geek Peak Construction. Whoa. Yes. Because, you know, you interviewed him when he climbed a Nolly. Yeah. And he was talking about his pink unicorn duct tape uh, nose sun protection that he created i was in alaska this spring i'm an irishman by uh (laughs) by what by my descendants i'm not an irishman (laughs) i was wondering how you were gonna finish that sentence uh yeah they have a lot of sun in alaska in the spring i was getting burned and i didn't have pink unicorn duct tape to protect my nose which i couldn't protect even with zinc and 100 spf sunscreen wow but uh, I made sort of like a medieval or Viking nosed helmet geek beak, as I was told it was called. And yeah, or like it kind of looked like the Terminator Viking helmet. Wow. And I remember Sam saying that the inside of his nostrils were still getting burnt and the inside of my nostrils did not get burnt after that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's going to need to be the third picture we have for this episode, right? Okay. So the photo I took of you, the birding photo, and then the geek beak photo that kept you more protected than that stupid Sam Shaheen. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that's where we're going there. Uh, I like that one. That is a nine. Going back to the gear stuff, you got to go kind of quicker on this. Yeah. What gear are you the most picky about, do you think? Well, the obvious answer is ski boots. Um, the less I don't know. This is the guy who's like, they just, I just literally drilled out the shells so that my heels and toes were sticking out. That doesn't really sound that picky, but keep going. Ski boots. He still wants to go ski boots. <laughs> because, yeah, I just feel like I can kind of figure out how a ski works regardless of the ski. Even by the numbers, it's not going to mesh with my style. But yeah. if the boot is the boot is wrong or the boots fit is wrong. It's going to mess with me and I'm not going to be able to really ski the way I want to at all. The not obvious answer is underwear. That's actually what I'm really picky about wow. in the backcountry. Yes. Touring. It's an issue. There's right underwear and wrong underwear. And I don't know how to quantify it, but <laughs> <laughs> wait, <laughs> okay. What would be some of the characteristics of quote unquote, right underwear? Well, it, th- we're all talking in the realm of uh, like athletic, breathable briefs. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what constitutes right uh, for you. So uh, uh, it can't ride up on your thighs. If okay. it's too high, then it's going to get ball bunched up. It can't give you a wedgie. It's got to breathe well, and it's got to strike this balance of stability, uh, cushion, movability. <laughs> cushion not cushion i was trying to relate it to like run our running shoe talk because we're using the same terms here but uh stability anti-chafing but not uh not suction cuppy not wow (laughs) what kind of underwear have you used in the past where you're like this is real suction cuppy (laughs) man this got weird (laughs) Um, do you, yeah, do, name brands. I need brands. Outdoor Research, uh, is Helium. Cuppy no, Outdoor Research Helium, uh, brief is my go-to underwear. Patagonia Sender Brief seems very similar in everything about it, but it is. It's a little suction cuppy? Yes. Wow. Yes. Patagonia. I'm vacuum, s- vacuum sealed. Oh, vacuum sealed. Yes. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound no. great. No, no. Okay. I don't have experience with either of those uh, pieces of backcountry equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did not see that coming. <clears throat> okay. Wow. What pieces of gear would you say you are least picky about? Uh, ski socks, which is maybe a weird thing since ski boots is what I'm most picky yeah. about and they're fit. But uh, yeah, pretty much you just stick a ski sock on. I can't feel anything on my foot anyway because the boot's so tight and... <laughs> It's good to go. Frostbite from (laughs) when you were skiing in negative 60 degree temperatures. Okay. Wait, so, but you, can you, you have enough room in your boots to get like a medium thick or high, high thickness level sock? That's not like an option for me. I, I think you just pack out the liner, hit the moguls harder, and then there's enough room in the, in the boot. That sounds so like I'm never going more than a medium thickness sock, but. Yeah, socks that other people have been like, those have cushion in the toes. Like, I could never fit that in my boot, and why would you want that? I don't know. I just, like, yeah. have always had those. I just throw them on, and they work. Okay, but wait. So, you are you will ski in a medium-thick sock? Because I have to be on that, like, a preferably what tends to get described as, like, ultra-thin mm-hmm. sock. 
And if you give me that, that's, so that's my clear priority. I want, I actually am not skiing in the thinnest possible because there's literally some ski socks out there that are basically pantyhose and I can like go a little thicker than that. But are you in that like ultra thin or you can roll into a sock thick enough that you think I'd be like, I'm not, I can't ski in that. Yeah, I definitely think so. Okay. Like the, so basically your boots are too big. They're minus five. <laughs> <laughs> the saddles are cut. The boots are too yeah, big. Oh, I don't know. It's all being this, bro, do you even ski? <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm docking you. I'm docking you. This is your, that's like a five that's answer. Good. Finally. Okay. We're, we're getting, we're getting there. This question, I don't, this is a poorly formulated question that I took, I think, off of Dylan Woods' previous episode of Reviewing the Reviewer. Um, it just says, top three favorite books, movies, and musicians. So mm-hmm. are we asking for three of each category? That's what I thought, but now okay. I can see how it could be well, interpreted. Okay, you have to pick your spots then, because we can't turn this into like an hour-long question. <laughs> So pick your spots. Where can you move quickly? And then you can pause where you have more to say. I'll narrow it down to one recent book just because there's so many good books out there. Uh, this book by Robert McFarland called uh, The Old Ways. It's sort of like a historical, cultural, and philosophical uh, look at the idea of what it has meant to walk over human history. And he talks about like there are some famous paths that people have taken on pilgrimages or like routes across continents, um, et cetera. It's been a really inspiring book, a cool way to think about like how landscape shapes the way we interact with it. Uh, that, that recent book may, has made your like podium for books of all time. No, but it's, it's a really good book because the books are always shifting. Like I change and maybe, maybe that book that I liked 20 years ago actually wasn't that good. So just trying to whittle it down here. Mm, okay. Well, name, go quicker. What other, what books made your podium today? Okay. Uh, to the Lighthouse oh, is yeah. my fiction pick and Barbarian Days is my uh, memoir. Wow. Which is, Barbarian Days yeah. is a memoir about being a surf bum. Yeah. Which, you know, has the obvious ties to being a ski bum. And, and I think um, the author goes through a lot of the same questions that sometimes us people who have lived in mountain towns for a long time think about. Yeah. To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. I love that freaking book. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Talk of like just a book that like brings empathy to every single character and just like, yeah, I can't say anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just everything. It turns out me. she was real good at writing. Yeah. I've been getting hit up recently, and I really appreciate this about our Gear 30 listeners and our Blister podcast listeners. A number of people have been like, when are you firing back up the promised Blister book club? And I have had multiple people request an episode on Barbarian Days. So I think that is going to happen. I still haven't read it. It's a long one, but it's a page turner. Like I'm a slow reader and I like reading slow. I got through that book in like two days. It's like 700 pages or something. You read it in two days? Yeah. I'm a slow reader, but it, it's a page turner. Okay. I'm a slow reader and I want to go one step further. I don't trust fast readers. <laughs> I think those are bullshit artists. I mean, that's how I usually feel too. But this is a book that just kind of made sense to me. And I actually, I don't know. I, I read a lot those days. For whatever reason, I think I was maybe traveling. I was reading okay. like 10 hours a day. Do you recommend it as an audiobook or no? Read the words on the page. 
I think this one you could read as an audiobook. Some, some, you know, you can go either way, but I think this one is not one that you necessarily need to be analyzing, right? The author does a good job of balancing showing and telling, and I think that it's pretty easily listenable. You know what one of my favorite audiobooks is of all time? What's that? Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. I could never read Virginia Woolf an audiobook, I don't think. It's amazing. Whoever read it, and I don't know who it was, like proper British accent, it was just like, yeah, normally with like good fiction writers, I want to look at the words on the page. Yeah. But this was, I had an incredible, yeah, experience with that. And but. just like reading out loud paragraph or page long sentences with like dashes and parenthetical yeah, statements. And... But this was a room of one's own, not to the lighthouse. Okay. I don't know that I think to the lighthouse would have worked as well. Mm. Anyway. Wow. That was an aside. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm the one who's slowing us down. Okay. That's your three books. I'm definitely going to dock you though, even though your first book called the old ways, mm-hmm. that was really interesting. But you were just like, I don't know if this will still be in my list even in like six months. So we got to find ways to ding you and I'm going after you on that. Ouch. Movies. Okay. Movies is really hard for me. Um, I chose to go with a fiction, a documentary, and then like quote unquote kids movie, which wow. I don't necessarily like that term, but uh, fiction, Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. Documentary. Uh, this movie called Leviathan, which is um, part of the, it's part of this school called the Ethnographic Sensory Lab. So they're documentaries. Um, they often don't really have any dialogue. They've got sound design and stuff, but it's just movies that are told through lengths of shots and um, letting the subjects express themselves through what they're doing. And the time that they're doing that, like time is a very expressive thing in these documentaries and also just camera movement. Um, and uh, Leviathan is is shot on like a bunch of different GoPros from the early 2000s. But it it's a movie that is shot on a commercial fishing boat and it they make it look like a Jackson Pollock painting. Okay. <laughs> okay. This was the moment of our conversation where I definitely feel like you were trying to impress upon all of us that you're the smart kid. I'm not sure that I would like this movie at all. I don't know that I would want to watch it after three minutes in. Do you think I'm wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> you're like, no, no one's ever accused you of being except smart kid. For, except for the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to be the smart kid. <laughs> I think you're trying to be the smart kid. No, I literally am just a film nerd. Film nerd. Okay. You can call a cinephile if you want, but I don't want to be accused of being the smart kid. Right. It's too late for that. <laughs> cinephile. And then the kids movie was uh, Spirited Away. That's the wrong answer. Okay. <laughs> people have, I have met many people who like, that's like their favorite movie. And uh-huh. I tried uh-huh. maybe kind of like if I've tried to watch Leviathan, but I didn't get there with that movie. Okay. Do you know what my answer would be? My Neighbor Totoro. I had never heard of that movie. Oh. <laughs> I was going to be Ratatouille. <laughs> See, that was my second choice. Well, you, yeah, you screwed up, obviously. <laughs> How come, what is it, make the pitch for Spirited Away? Because I saw it and I'm like, I don't, what are we doing here? It just speaks to everything about what it is like to be growing up and living in your own imagination. And then the like, oh man, I'm going to sound really nerdy. But like the metaphor work is like told from the perspective of a kid. Like if something is like, 
and maybe it's simplistic, but if like something is bad, you know, yeah. it's big or yeah. something, which like in that example, sort of simplistic and reductive. But I think in other ways, it actually is really beautiful. And then it's also just got amazing music. It like sticks with me. It's got huh. this like really like kind of haunting, like kind of it's like being an adult and but getting the pleasures of being a kid at the same time watching that movie. Hmm. All right. <laughs> if you had to wager a thousand dollars of if I sat down and watched Leviathan or Spirited Away in a like, all right, we're doing this, stay focused. What do you like your chances? Which movie do you think I would, you like your chances of me coming out and being like, that was really good? Leviathan. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This gets to another thing, our movie club. Yes. That was really your movie club, but then I sort of <laughs> co-opted it a little bit, but we haven't really done it. I feel like we should fire it up. Yeah, bring it on. Are you, have you still been doing your like non me attempting to take over the movie club, movie club? Eh, a little bit. Some of those friends moved away. So, okay. yeah. So you need some new friends. Yeah. This is my perfect opportunity to strike. All right. Okay. <laughs> we, sh- we should get this going. I was thinking about this the other day and yeah, I think if we get me and you committing to it, we invite some people, it, it's either just going to be me and you and they can come or whatever. But I think we got to like, Sweet. we got to nail, nail yeah. this down. Okay, but apparently you're not ever allowed to choose the movies. <laughs> That's I like I, bad movies, quote unquote, just as good. I was going to put 1954's Clash of the Titans on this list, which is like a claymation creature double oh, feature yeah. type of thing, which is like an objectively like kind of ridiculous and bad movie, which I also love. But Can you name the movie that you and I were supposed to watch? We talked about it and then, but it hasn't happened. Do you remember? The Power of the Dog. Yeah. Yeah. I still haven't seen it. Are you, with time has passed, are you still up on that movie? Not sure where you stand? Yeah, regardless of whether I like it or not, I think it's an interesting movie. Okay. Like, I think it's worth watching. It's not like just a throwaway movie. Okay. We'll figure out our movie club, like, list. Um, (laughs) Okay. Musicians. Top three favorite. Okay. Well, I grew up being a musician, and the musician that inspired me to be a musician was James Brown. Oh. Um, so he's on my list. He's always been on my list, and I don't think he'll ever leave. Uh-huh. Just, again, somebody that puts their entire physical and musical being into uh, their their music, I think, is awesome. And his rhythm section is just like mm. heaven and yeah. earth, like just grooves so hard. Yeah. And um, yeah. James Brown, uh, Brian Blade is my jazz musician that I love. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's just insanely precise, insanely passionate. Drums What's like he play? nobody. I'm afraid he I plays don't... drums. Okay. And uh, yeah, he, he just drums like nobody else in the world. He's got his own unique voice. And yeah. Is L- there like the Bri- Brian Blade? Yeah. Is there the Brian Blade album or Brian Blade track you would recommend? He's got recommend? some albums. Let's see. Track I would listen to uh, probably Sweet Nasty. And that's, wow. And that sounds like a James Brown song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's playing with Joshua Redman. So the, it's the Joshua Redman Elastic Band. And uh, yeah, he's playing drums on that track. Sweet Nasty. Yeah. that might be your name on your dating profile what about that i don't know if i can live up to that though that'd be a lot okay that was two yep last one tough one uh i went with lcd sound system for my like sort of contemporary pop rock 
sort of genre. And wow. Yeah. They just play emotional dance music. That's cool. Favorite LCD sound system track? I can change. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of good ones. Okay. Man, my God. You are definitely the most eclectic person we've ever had on reviewing the reviewer. You might be the weirdest too. Well, it's because <laughs> I have no dates. I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> Again, this isn't what I'm hearing from around the from around the way. That's because you haven't changed your name to Sweet Nasty. <laughs> so, <laughs> one we I think we're supposed to add in the rescue sleds, and then see how that works out. But then, what happens if when you change your name to Sweet Nasty? And my God, it sort of like puts a maybe not the right. Uh, I mean, it's, meaning behind look, all these. We're so far down the re- the path. This social experiment has been launched. It's really not about you anymore, Drew. Oh, okay. So I think for the good of you know all Gear Thirty listeners, we just need to see. We need to see what happens. So you know, don't be selfish. Um, what were you calling it? Ego sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. It's just another step in your spiritual disciplines. I'm going to give you, I'm, I want to ding you for that favorite book because that, that we don't know if that's going to have staying power. I think that's a 6.5. All right. But you can be upgraded if you, if you put your name as Sweet Nasty <laughs> for one month. We'll come back and we'll adjust this to a 9.5. Okay. Okay. Give us a random review question we've asked i think to most or all of our past mm-hmm. guests on reviewing the reviewer this one is of the uh alaskan highway pit toilets um <laughs> alaskan <laughs> highway pit toilets yes alaska is a big state there are long highways there's not many rest stops but when there are they are desperately needed apparently and uh when i was in alaska this spring my crew was uh sort of doing a review of the pit toilets because you never knew what would happen when you <laughs> not what would happen what, <laughs> what, what? i think we know what's gonna happen yeah. <laughs> but you walk in into a alaskan pit toilet and it would be an education in uh art and politics and society and uh entertainment it was also a very social experience because Sometimes we camped in parking lots and we just sort of sit and watch the pit toilet and watch people as they would drive up as fast as they could run to the pit toilet and see how far they could get into the door before turning around and then just gauge the reaction on their faces. And then they would come up and talk to us. So we'd be very entertained and then we'd also make friends. Wow. So basically Alaskan pit toilets are where you went to high school because it sounded like the same thing to me. Um, just one was in Massachusetts. No, Alaskan pit toilets are way more of a party than, than more my high school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Alaskan pit toilets as your random review. That was pretty good. It's still though, I don't feel like you really informed us how it actually differed from your high school. So we'll say that was a seven, 7.5. Um, and I, I look forward to experiencing Alaskan pit toilets for myself someday. Yeah. To make it more blister, Alaskan pit toilets, who are they for? Cave trolls. (laughs) Cave trolls? Yeah. That would be the only thing that would feel comfortable going in one of those. Wow. Cave trolls? That's not a thing. What what do you mean that's not a thing? Choss monsters? Cave trolls? Yeah. What's a cave troll? It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Is this like It's not a troll that lives under a bridge. 
They, <laughs> so this is just kind of homeless people that live in. No, there's they, not a Facebook group called the <laughs> Cave Trolls. No, unless there might be. You I mean, should probably look yeah. that up eventually. You just invented the cave troll. That's not a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Other people know that term? Yeah, I think so. Really? I'm the only one that doesn't? <laughs> I don't know if you're the only one, okay. but... Um, all right, we're, we really... We've gone long here. Yes. My God. <laughs> Apologies to our producer, Justin Bob, um, but we're going to keep going. Um, <laughs> what's the best question I haven't asked you? I think that question is, what is the most interesting thing that's ever happened to me? And not a lot because I have all these sort of esoteric interests. But this one time, I did play in a band with Bill Nye, the science guy. What? Yes. In college, <laughs> in college, I was in a band named Bill Nye and the Science Guys. I hated that name of the band. The day before spring break, I got a call on my phone who said, hello, is this Drew? This is Bill Nye. And I, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got a call on my phone from Bill Nye. The connection was somebody in my band's mom worked at NASA and knew Bill Nye. And he's like, I'm coming to Colorado Springs where I was going to college and I want to play with your band. And so we practiced a bunch of songs. He gave me this password to get into this uh, conference. This was like an international missile and rocketry conference that he was speaking at. Um, at the Broadmoor Hotel, which is this uh, very nice, swanky, <laughs> swanky uh, hotel. He gave me this password, ATK3000. <laughs> of course, it w- being the right before spring break, I told all my college friends, I texted them this password. I said, you got to wear a tuxedo. Here's the password. Show up, come up with the story. We practice a bunch of songs. We're hauling our gear up into this conference room and I'm like, I'm walking past like generals with like decorations down their like breast and I've got like my drums and stuff that I'm like trying to lug up the stairs and we set everything up. We're wearing lab coats and science goggles and Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson are there and (laughs) Bill Nye ties my uh, guitarist like bow tie for him, which was cool. And um so we play we play music for all these like astronauts and generals and scientists and military people, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we're playing like his theme song or we're playing like 2001 Space Odyssey and like Rocket Man and like, you know, space theme yeah. stuff. And he's like singing his theme song with us. And all these college kids crash the party, like 300 college kids. And this is like the after party for this conference. And uh there are many open bars. So like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson are hammed, like playing beer pong with people and like wrestling on the floor and wiggling around. And like all these drunk college kids are like making up stories like, yeah, I'm like looking into like how to terraform Mars or like, (laughs) and just like schmoozing with these like people who are, (laughs) you know, way out of our pay grade. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty fun night. A lot of the videos got pulled from the internet because Bill Nye is holding a lot of shot glasses. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like the next, over the next couple months, we all got contacted by like all these like morning shows being like, hey, can we use these videos and stuff? And What year was this? This was 2012, probably. Wow. Have you talked to Bill since? Uh, he came into the Alpineer where I used to work and he Wait. was wearing... 
He came into the Alpineer? Yeah, I don't want to like divulge too much, but I my impression was he was maybe friends with someone or dating someone that lived in Crested Butte. And so he would occasionally come here and he was sort of like incognito. He had a mask on and he had like this like bucket hat on that was sort of guarding his face. So I couldn't, he looked really familiar, but like I couldn't really see who he was. And so I was kind of like talking to him about like camelback bladders or something. And he was like making a lot of jokes that he thought were hilarious. And I was just like, and I didn't really recognize him until he walked out the door and he had dropped a mask and someone in his party had dropped a, uh, like a COVID mask and it had a picture of Bill Nye on the mask. And I was like, that's where I knew his face from. Wow. Yeah. Or more his tone of voice because I couldn't see his face because his hat was sort of over it. Well, my goodness, Bill Nye, if you're listening to this, <laughs> if, if somebody, wouldn't that be amazing if he was a regular Gear 30 listener? That would be amazing. I mean, I think he could be kind of up his alley. Right? Yeah. You know, so if you're listening to this or somebody forwards you this conversation, open invitation to Crested Butte, to Blister Headquarters. We can go ski or snowboard or look at telescopes or go birding the, the you pick the activity, but we should make this happen. Boy, that would be a good guest on the blister podcast too. Yeah. Or if you want to get the band back together, Bill, that's cool as well. Let's get the band back together. Yeah. Wow. As much as I'd like to dock you, that's a straight 10. That yes. is, uh, I did not see that coming. How have I known you this long and never heard this story? <laughs> because in these ice breaking things, I can never think of like, I don't have anything interesting about me. And then wow. somehow I always forget so, that story and then come back to it 30 minutes too late. So if we just, if you just know there's going to be some heads up, if you have some heads up and you yeah. know, you're going to be asked some personal questions, you really, you really bring the heat. I mean, <laughs> I was working today. I didn't spend that much time on this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Wow. Um, That's amazing. All right. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to tally up your score. We'll save this kind of for our outro. And, you know, you'll then find out when with everybody else, uh, when this podcast goes live tomorrow, what your score is here, because we do need to keep it moving for now. And I guess this whole talk of Bill Nye and, you know, science and Neil deGrasse Tyson and space I'm going to have you join me here for our weekly segment on what we're celebrating because there can only be one thing possible that we could be celebrating this week. Yes. And this would be the images and the findings that are coming back from the James Webb telescope. Why don't you talk for a minute and I'll kind of chime in here, but folks... This is straight up maybe the coolest thing ever in history. Let's just, we'll kind of throw the gauntlet down there. Your turn. I I can't disagree with you. I mean, like, I was unexpectedly, like, moved to tears by these images. And I feel like usually I can put a finger on why something is emotional. Mm. I didn't really know why just looking at this, like, image on my phone. But it was pretty powerful. Um and just speaks to, I, I, I don't even know is kind of the thing yeah. in that like maybe, you know, blandly like how small this one little yeah. planet is of ours. But yeah, and I, I'm not even necessarily someone that's like very inspired by the money going into space research and space travel and all that. But this was, these were really powerful for me. Hmm. I've got 
a thought about what is powerful and or amazing. And when I say like maybe the most incredible thing that's ever happened in human history, the James Webb telescope has evidently sent back images that are from the past, like 13 billion years ago. Like we're in full sort of space time continuum bending stuff. Like, you know, there's those people (laughs) who like, we have the flat earthers, right? They're like, yeah, the earth's not round. And then there's people that are like, mankind never set foot on the moon. That was all faked. If we were gonna talk about probabilities of anything ever being faked, the notion that this week, we are looking at images of galaxies that are images that were there 13 billion years ago. What is happening right now? <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but like, how can like none of us be able to understand like our tax system? But we just put something in outer space that is sending back images of the galaxy that what we're seeing took place 13 billion years ago. The levels of what's possible here seem way off. Is that so is that true of everything that we see in space, though, because of the speed of light? No, I I don't think everything. Okay, I don't think everything. No, I mean, definitely not everything. I mean, we can we have sent, you know, ships into space that can turn around and take an incredibly high fidelity picture of the earth and get that back to us pretty quickly. Let's yeah. I'll just leave it as pretty quickly since I am definitely not a, you know, scientist, amateur yeah. astrologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, I'm not that. So one as you already pointed to, I mean, we are seeing much clearer images of things than we've ever seen. That I think is very much making it clear than ever before, like, again, how tiny the Earth is. When you look at a photo that's kind of, apologies for the word, but like littered with images of stars and galaxies, fully mind-bending. Yeah, I'll be curious to see where the science goes with this too, because I think my impression is that the scientists are also fully mind melted melted yeah still at this point so like after it passes this initial stage which i don't know if it ever will but like yeah what what knowledge do we gain from this yeah yeah i mean it is truly astonishing and it's funny in this conversation we spent a lot of time talking about like walking up mountains and sometimes where you are literally focused on every single little step that you are making right and then Thanks to the James Webb telescope, we have zoomed out unimaginably far. And I love that, right? And I think we kind of need both of those things in our lives. Like those of us who go outdoors and run or ski or bike or whatever we do, to have that ability to go back and forth between that incredible focus on what is literally right in front of us and then... (laughs) To have access to images of an unfathomable scope. Well, literally unfathomable because we still don't have images of the whole thing. 
not even sure if that's possible at any point in human history where we'll be like, we found the outlines of it all. Wild. Maybe it's just reassuring in a way to know that there is infinite knowledge to be had out there. Well, I like it. And later tonight, I'm going to raise a glass of some 15-year-old Whistlepig whiskey. I've still got to get a workout in and some other things to wrap up on this day. But tonight, I am raising my glass to everyone involved in the building of and the launching of and the operation of the James Webb Telescope and the incredible images that we are fortunate enough to be alive to see. Good stuff. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, man. Thank you. This has been fun. It's also, I think, been our longest episode of reviewing the reviewer ever. So congrats on that. And we're super happy to have you around and bringing your very uh, eclectic perspective to all the stuff we're doing around here. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that then brings us to the end of this particular episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Drew, of course, for this very wide-ranging conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for editing this behemoth of a conversation and just for being terrific. And then, of course, I want to say thanks to all of you for listening and from me and the entire team at Blister. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will be talking with you again real soon. Bye, everybody.